cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 15th of January 2009. For the newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website, and you'll find hundreds of hours of talks I've given, educational talks, where I try to piece the big picture together for the people out there. You can download them for free. Also, look into Alan Watt Sentinel, and you can download the written transcripts of these audio talks and print them up and they're written in the various languages of Europe. And for those who support me financially, I should keep going ahead because things are getting tough for everyone these days and everything costs money. And you can donate on the website. You can also see what's for sale. And that keeps me going. I've got to remind people every once in a while because it trails off. And I'm not surprised because there's so much other stuff out there too that will take up your attention and perhaps you go off in a different direction, and that's okay as well. There's always newcomers coming in, and uh, that's what keeps me going. I don't get paid for coming on the radio. I've never asked anyone for money for appearances. I don't go through an agent. I don't have a foundation. So you keep me going, the listeners. So this program is brought to you by you, in a sense. This last while I've been talking about the forms of control that have mastered us really, in a sense, they have shaped the whole Western culture. And the people who are the last to know about it are the populations of the countries of the West themselves. The sciences of the mind were kept, especially mass manipulation, were kept secret from the people. But these same sciences were used upon the people. And there isn't an organization out there today that doesn't go through what they call public relations. I've talked about Bernays, who was only one man who was taught this science. I don't believe he was the man who dreamed it up. He was taught this science, and you can find the traces of that by his associates and by books that were published in the 1800s on the crowd. And the crowd, today we call it psychology. Then they called it the behavior or behaviorism of crowds. They meant the masses and how people can be manipulated. Many people had been studying this in previous centuries, how it worked. We know for a fact that even the Jesuit order was so successful because you might say that they were trained in an early form of both, both individual psychology for the individual person and the relationship to the individual, to the masses. That's why it really was so 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 effective in building up a, a power enterprise across the world. But their technique eventually was found out by other people and used to the maximum. We find Cecil Rhodes himself, when he set up the Rhodes Foundation, said that we'd set up a, a society, a form of secret society, to bring in what they thought was world government based on the British structure 
a British Empire structure. And he said that they would use the Jesuit techniques. So these techniques have been studied and practiced down through hundreds of years and formulated, perfected until in the 20th century, I think, they came into full blossom and have been used on everyone. It's true, when you vote for someone, you'll never know that person. You'll ne- all you get is a public relations image. The person you see is an image made by the PR specialists. And incredible amounts of money are spent on creating this image. And I'm going to go into this in further depth after the following messages. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. And I'm talking out of Canada, Ontario, Canada, where there's a real deep freeze on. And this will be the third night in a row, I think. It will go below the 40-degree mark. So I've got the fire well stacked up. Although my sinuses get a bit blocked in this kind of weather. So if I sound a bit nasal, you'll know why. I was thinking today, too, which ties in with all of this, about all... Of the reasons are given for world government, because this ties into everything I've been talking about. And the reason the League of Nations and then the United Nations was set up, supposedly to be an arbiter of conflicts. And it's set up much like that of a teacher in an old-fashioned school, where you have a couple of guys fighting in the playground, And the teacher doesn't go up and ask who's right or wrong. The teacher goes in and stops the screaming and sends them to cool off. And then, on a one-to-one basis, they'll try to work out the problem. It's not necessary to find out really who is right and who is wrong because they'll both really believe they are. And that's how nations pretty well react with each other, especially when they have long histories of conflict clear up once in a while and for the ones out there who are a bit older I'm sure we're all pretty fed up with the same wars going on and on and on our whole lives long we've never really had peace although we were removed from it in such a way we tend to forget it but really since World War II there's been conflict after conflict and we get little pieces on the news once in a while, but it's always so far from us and so removed from us, it's remote. And if you watch television, for instance, it'll become surrealistic. It's mixed in with the advertising and the fantasies that you watch until it really makes no sense to us. We throw it out, we toss out the, the horror, literally, with what's happening with all, all of the fantasy. That's also a control mechanism. Technically and legally, people can can be told that they were warned that the world is too unstable. And at the same time, they don't really care. They hear it, but they don't really care. And it's impossible at times to care if you're really into getting your mainstream media from television where it is so surrealistic. How can you watch something that's horrific one minute and then you're laughing at a comedy the next? That technically... From an outsider's point, an alien from Mars, 
would we classify you as insane or deathly unstable. But that is how all culture is controlled in this day and age. Now, there's no doubt about it. They're very powerful forces, and that's the term that's used over and over by historians to describe the big foundations and the big NGOs that are well-funded to bring in this new system, almost like the Star Trek system with the Federation, you might say. That's, that's the idealistic image that's portrayed that they hope to eventually come out with. But, but as I say, really, there are forces that have guided us to this position. And even if you could possibly, by some strange miracle, get peace on earth, those same forces would have to instigate trouble to start it all over again because it's through conflict and it's because of conflict that they use their pulling themselves up to the top to be the teacher over us, the school teacher again. We can't handle ourselves. See, look what happens. You need us to give you security, but you'll have no privacy or freedoms. And that truly is the whole system that has been set up. That's where it's going. I've read numerous documents, so many that I lose count of from mainstream to do with the near future. And, and often after you've read it, you find another article where this particular area of observation or lack of privacy has already been, it's already come in into use. It's so quick, it's so fast. It's because it was planned a long time ago. That's why. We are never told the truth about conflicts. And even then, not all the truth. We were never told the truth of what really went on until at least 50 years after any event. And sometimes it's classified, reclassified for another 50 years or more. When Pierre Trudeau was the Prime Minister of Canada, the media never told the people when he was running for prime ministership that he had been the leader of the Young Communist Movement for Canada and led the party to Moscow for their common turn meeting in 1952. The whole media knew, but they never bothered to mention it to the voters. And when he got in, he and René Levesque both uh, went to each other and says, we did it. They got in using the system as it already stood. And one of the last acts he did as Prime Minister was to reclassify a document listing all the communist infiltrators and members, actually party members or card-carrying members, who worked in the federal government and the massive bureaucracy. He reclassified it. That was eventually, that was first given at the end of World War II to the Prime Minister of Canada by Gusenko. Why would they reclassify something? Many, many years later, why was it so dangerous? And here we are at the bottom, trying to wade through all the disinformation and get to the bottom of it. We can't, because we're not given access to it. Years ago, I said on one of the first radio programs I was on, if you were to look into 
every conspiracy book or state start with one. One conspiracy book that has its favorite target. And the whole book is about that target. And they bring up facts and statements made by this other person from them over there, whoever they may be. You would be convinced that that book is correct. But if you stop there, you'll probably stay in that little pigeonhole, never looking anywhere else. And I said, if you look at every other conspiracy book where the fingers point elsewhere, you'd say, my God, this is correct too. Well, how can they all be correct? How is that possible? Is it simply that every power group has to be in conflict with every other power group for supremacy? Do they all play by dirty tricks? Is that the whole point of it? Can there be any honesty between competing parties, or is the very fact that competing in the first place fall down to winners and losers? What I'm saying here, and the terms I'm using here are used in big conferences at the United Nations, and they were used long ago, long before I was born, by the precursor, which is the League of Nations. We know again that big people, big powerful families have funded into existence the United Nations. We know the beginnings or some of the beginnings of these families, which is widely written about by even the authorized authors and how they got their start. We can go into the book, The Robber Barons of the 1800s, and see how the railroad companies were basically given incredible amounts of land and even took a hundred miles sometimes on either side of the track, which they years later did sell off for parcels and so on. But it was all given carte blanche to them by their friends in government. We find that the Rockefellers were the same. An old man Rockefeller, the one that they always give us at the beginning of this dynasty, as far as the riches go, would tolerate no competition. You corner the market one way or another or you get rid of your opposition by any means possible. It was ruthless. It was war. And today we live in a world of transnational corporations. They have no loyalty to any country whatsoever. But they do donate money to the big foundations and the foundations run the non-governmental organizations which are to become what's called the new democracy. And I think that was the goal in the first place of the setting up of this, this thing called democracy, to be honest with you, because I've got very old books here where writers, when they heard the term coming, the coming democracy, the one we're used to for the last hundred odd years, they said this would have to happen. Inevitably, you, you would find the biggest, most powerful groups who could lobby governments, make friends with governments, often from the same schools as the old boys' schools as those in government and bureaucracy would run nations. And that's been the way it has been. That's also why we've never seen a halt in the march towards what they call this new order or new world order, something people used to laugh at years ago. Except when the media used the words and then no one laughed. But if you used them, yeah, they would laugh at you because the public are not in on this higher reality.
reality. The sciences that I've been discussing the last few nights have worked incredibly well. The scientific indoctrination of Bertrand Russell has also worked very well in education. We've all had the same basic indoctrinations. Now, if it were possible, if it was possible to have peace by some weird, weird miracle, as I say, those same foundations who haven't finished their work yet for a totally managed, controlled society would have to start another conflict. And they would. They would start another conflict. And it would be 50 years before you found out who truly started it. You think you had your obvious enemy, and you'd all be wrong. Back with more after the following break. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. And just before the break, I was talking about the various techniques that would be used and have been used to give us the reasons for this total control, the system of total control that's being brought in. Where they tell us we're just too immature, we run by emotion and not by logic and reason, and we have to be managed like school children. But I also mentioned that when we went into various accusations made in pretty well every conspiracy book, with the, with the names there, the facts there, the statements there that you can check up, you'd have to agree that they're all correct. All of them. Every side. And if that's the case, it means that everyone, all those groups have been trying to attain power over all the other groups for an awful long time, if that really is the case. They laughed today, in fact, that the big boys at the top gave us the term conspiracy theory. And they've advocated the use of that term. And people have adopted it who are into conspiracies, not realizing that they're mocking themselves. They'll also tell you there are no conspiracies. And yet history is just one long, long story of ongoing conspiracies. If you were to ask a person working for the British government in the, the home office in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s, what their function was, they'd have told you, if they were honest and you were one of them, or from the right school, they'd tell you it was to basically create a British empire across the whole globe. Wells called it the open conspiracy. He said everything's published. It wasn't quite true, but everything being published, but a lot of it was. And their goals and aims were certainly published. And he wrote about the setting up of the League of Nations, and he also said, this is really the end of government as people know it. Because now, bureaucracies through treaties, the countries' treaties can actually go between or bypass the politicians and the people and communicate directly through to each other through this League of Nations. So that was a new type of democracy that already came in. And it was to be bound together by treaties. The big treaties we've seen in our own lifetimes being signed, for those who can remember, and it's hard, there's so many of them, often sound so innocuous 
you think it doesn't really concern you. And there's no doubt about it that when the European Union organization was really set up to become a union, they lied to the public. Well, isn't that a conspiracy? They'll often say it's a noble lie, the noble lie, because you cannot tell the children they don't understand we're doing it for the greater good, to end conflict, etc. But it was a conspiracy nonetheless. And now they've opened up their books and all their writings to do with 1948 onwards, and they said at the outset that the public must not be told until this amalgamation is complete, meaning having a parliament. That was a conspiracy. But it's it's, it's a semi-open conspiracy because they give you hints, they give you clues, they write books prior to that about uniting Europe that very few people read, unfortunately. So Wells, in a sense, was right. It was an open conspiracy for those that wanted to find out. It's the same with the amalgamation of the Americas. And Karl Marx talked about a world where three trading blocks each one, each trading block with a government subservient to a world government would run the entire globe. He wrote that in the 1800s. If everyone is correct about the other groups all competing for power and doing the dirty on everyone else, is it possible there's a guiding hand controlling all of them at the top? towards this one ending. Remember what they say, you cannot get progress without conflict. It's from resolution of conflict, you get new organizations, a new system, a new deal set up. That's the technique that we live under. The absence of conflict would make the whole plan fall flat in its face. They cannot allow peace until they can guarantee peace. How can they guarantee peace? They can only guarantee peace for every single individual on the planet is 100% predictable, brain-chipped, and eventually the next lot will be genetically engineered and probably chipped as well. So they cannot think, as they've said in their own writings, as a separate individual. All for one and one for all, all one. I've talked about some of the techniques that have been used that work incredibly well because we're born into a system where your grandmother or your mother or father gives you a few pennies and then you find you can buy something with these little things and you don't question it. It just, it's just a done thing. It's like a routine you go through from then on. You don't question it. I give you this, you give me that. We're taught at school to go out and chase after the carrot of money and be successful as much as we can. And most people find out they can't gain what they call success because the system is rigged that way. I'll be back with more after this break on the same topic. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Mr. Steinmel and Watt were cutting through the matrix, trying to get above all of this and look down on it, look down upon it, because sometimes you have to look at things from different angles altogether. I talked before about Plato's cave, a great, a, a great story, a great analogy of the world in itself and how people were brought up in a cave, kind of fixed in a position they could never look towards the lights and the opening of the cave, so they're facing the back of the cave. And their whole philosophy, their whole reality, came from the discussions they had about their world. That was their world. They had no idea of a big world outside of it. He was giving us the understanding that they already knew how groups work. And he said himself that, that if there were people outside the cave passing and causing shadows from the sun to the back of the cave, those who saw the back of the cave would try and interpret even these shadows and have great philosophical debates about it. And then they'd just come to resolution themselves because we have to fix something in reality to make it seem worthwhile. Life has to have purpose and reason. So, so they came to a philosophy. Then one got out of the cave and saw the great outdoors, the great wilds out there, and the marvels of the outside world. He came back to tell them, and he sat down, and they wanted to kill him because it broke their whole idea of their reality inside that cave. All reality had to fit in with their beliefs inside that cave. That analogy holds true for nations who have succumbed to propaganda, because we see the effects of great patriotism when it's abused by very skillful manipulators. Every country has had them. Every country, there's no exception. I don't think there's ever been a just society anywhere, except in novels about the Golden Age. And I stress novels. If we go into Marxism, Marxism wasn't all completely wrong in the writings of Marx himself. He did point out some real truths about the conflicts to do with materialism. And he came up with the theory of dialectical materialism. And just like a teacher, again, trying to sort it all out, the idea was very simple, but ignored so much of the human traits itself. In other words, everyone's fighting over territory, and food and things, if everyone was, created, was put in an equal position with the same distribution of goods and, and all participated in this great society that when they build, eventually came into the Soviet Union, then somehow it would all be okay. Very, very simplistic. But the Trotskyite faction of it was more steeped in the, the Engels side of things, Engels who helped Marx and did a lot of his writings and so on. And the whole idea was that communism, as we know it, became a system for what they called progress. Just like the West talks about the progress of science by using science and the dialectical technique or the technique of the dialectic that's conflicting opposites in a sense they would bring out a new society now it was very simple we've all heard the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis if you want something to happen or you make a move someone will come up 
and, and culture and oppose you. And out of the conflict, you have a resolution or you come together and you have synthesis, but then the synthesis becomes the new thesis to start it all over again. And so this progress, this, this thought could be speeded up, accelerated, because we're all working on Darwin's theories of evolution. And that was also to do with the evolution of culture and society, and the great society, as it turned out. So ongoing war, and we saw this come out in the Soviet Union and in China. China had the cultural war, where the youth who were further along in their indoctrination were killing the older ones, who they claimed were, had still contamination, even though they were communists and had served the system well. They were still contaminated because they had memory of the old system. So when we come down to the Norman Dodd inquiry with the Rees Commission, where he said we're bringing a system in, the foundations in the West were bringing a system where they were combining communism or Sovietization with that of the West, and it blend seamlessly together. That has happened. And what I want to read here is a bit about some of the groups. Using the psychologies and the understanding of the masses and individual behavior as well, of Bernays and others, were used to help set up the system that we're now living in today. And that was the Frankfurt School. I'll read this document and leave a link at the end of the show so you can look it up for yourself. And it's up to you what you want to think of what I say. There are many ways to see the same thing. But it's up to you if you want to know what's really happened, how we got where we are. And I admit it's awfully boring trying to catch up and find how we got where we are. It's like looking the other way while... The steamroller that ran over you is in the horizon in the other direction as they rush off to the future. That is true. The Frankfurt School refers to a group of German-American theorists who developed powerful analysis, analysis of the changes in Western capitalist societies that occurred since the classical theory of Marx. Working at the Institute for Social Forschung in Frankfurt, Germany in the late 1920s and early 1930s, Theorists such as Marx Horkheimer, T.W. Adorno, that's Theo Adorno, I've talked about him before. Amazing books he turned out. It's certainly an amazing mind. It's up to you whether you agree with him or not. Herbert Marcuse, Leo Lowenthal, and Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm also turned out a lot of books and produced some of the first accounts within critical society, a social theory of the importance of mass culture and communication and social reproduction and domination. The Frankfurt School also generated one of the first models of a critical cultural studies that analyzes the processes of cultural production and political economy, the politics of cultural texts, and audience reception and use of cultural artifacts. Moving from Nazi Germany to the United States, the Frankfurt School experienced at first hand the rise of a media culture involving film, that's movies and so on, popular music, radio, television, and other forms of mass culture. In the United States, where they found themselves in exile, media production was by and large a form of commercial entertainment controlled by big corporations. Two of its key theorists, Marx Horkheimer 
and T.W. Adorno developed an account of the cultural industry. They called it the culture industry. To call attention to the industrialization and commercialization of culture under capitalist relations of production. This situation was most marked in the United States that had little state support of film or television industries and where a highly commercial mass culture emerged that came to be a distinctive feature of capitalist societies and a focus of critical cultural studies. During the 1930s, the Frankfurt School developed a critical and transdisciplinary approach to cultural and communications studies, combining political economy, the textual analysis, and analysis of social and ideological effects of. They coined the term culture industry to signify the process of the industrialization of mass-produced culture and the commercial imperatives, they call commercial imperatives, that drove the system. The critical theorists analyzed all mass-mediated cultural artifacts within the context of industrial production, in which the commodities of the culture industries exhibited the same features as other products of mass production, commodification, standardization, and massification. Now, if you look at how far back, even in the movies, they were showing you certain brands of cars in movies, they tell you who made the clothes for the sets. That's the fashion industry there. And various other features. You have phenomenons that were created, like Elvis Presley. Look at all the cars you would see in each of these movies, and the clothes and the fashions, etc. It was all planned with all those groups together, these big groups like the ones like Bernays ran. The cultural industries had the specific function, however, of providing ideological legitimation, legitimation of existing capitalist societies and of integrating individuals into its way of life. So you don't realize that the culture that you're given is put out by, by guys like Bernays, a man who could literally con a nation to go into war with another country because he had vested interests. He was getting paid by the main company that literally was bananas, literally was bananas, that controlled that country. He wanted the guy out who was voted in, and he got the U.S. to go to war and bomb them. That's the power of persuasion. And Bernays himself set up a movie industry to deal with that specific subject. and It turned out propaganda was shown over all the cinemas everywhere, full of lies about this particular prime minister who had been voted in. And that won over the minds of the people. That's how easy it is. If it's on the screen, if it's on TV, it must be true. That's how simple it is. That was in Wag the Dog, same thing. That's why Woody Allen called that movie Bananas. He knew. Adorno's analysis of popular music, television, and other phenomena ranging from astrology columns to fascist speeches in everything that's in your society, everything that's in the newspaper, from astrology columns to fascist speeches, everything that will influence people. Lowenthal's studies of popular literature and magazines, Herzog's study of radio soap operas. So they're even studying radio soap operas back then to see how it affects culture. And it was affecting the culture. They had tremendous results and, and amazing information they were compiling about societies. And the perspectives and critiques of mass culture developed by Horkheimer 
and Adorno's famous study of the cultural industries, which he published in 1970, or it was published in 1972. This provides many examples of the Frankfurt School approach. Moreover, in their theories of the culture industries and critiques of mass culture, they were among the first social theorists its importance in the reproduction of contemporary societies. In their view, mass culture and communication stand in the center of leisure activity. They are, they are important agents of socialization. They're mediators of political reality and should thus be seen as major institutions of contemporary societies with a variety of economic, political, and social effects. Going into the writings of Bernays and that series of videos I've got up on my site from a, a two or three nights ago, you'll see how they literally created a modern American culture. If you look into the movie, you can even buy the movie. It's called um, Hollywoodism or Hollywood and the Culture Industry. You'll hear the top uh, producers of movies and, and the owners of the big companies in Hollywood saying, we gave Americans their culture. We created American culture. And what they claimed was before Hollywood came along, there was no, there was no real unified culture. You had different immigrants from different areas in Europe who settled in different areas who kept their old cultures, often a little bit different from each other. So Hollywood is claiming that they helped unify the country in the, the 1900s by giving them movies and giving them a past, the cowboy past that only lasted a few years, remember, before the trains came through. Furthermore, the critical theorists investigated the cultural industries in a political context as a form of the integration of the working class into capitalist societies. The Frankfurt School theorists were amongst the first neo-Marxian groups to examine the effects of mass culture and the rise of the consumer society on the working classes, which were to be the instrument of revolution in the classical Marxian scenario. See, Marxism, they knew, could not win in a society where basic necessities were available to pretty well everyone. They also analyzed the ways the culture industries and consumer society were stabilizing contemporary capitalism and accordingly sought new strategies for political change. See, they were after, these guys in this group were after political change, a directed change. And some of them, like Theodorno and so on, were used during World War II, along with many other well-known writers of that period, by MI5. And yet these guys were actually classified as Trotskyites. They were, they were believers in the Trotsky perpetual revolution idea. So Connolly sought new strategies for political change, agencies of political transformation, and models for political emancipation that could serve as norms of social critique and goals for political struggle. This project required rethinking Marxian theory and produced many important contributions as well as some problematic positions. Now remember too, they wanted to separate the youth from the older using the classical techniques of communism because they wanted a fresh start with new youth who were, who were in touch with parents. You must divide parents from the youth to get a 
new idea across. You must make the parents seem old-fashioned and out of touch. And that your teachers, because they went through universities primarily in schools, to reshape the, the minds of the young. But the teachers were closer to you generally in age and importance and knowledge. Where old mum and dad didn't know much at all. They were old think. And in fact, in this particular school, that's where these terms came from that Orwell used. Good and ungood in terms like that. They used these terms amongst themselves. The Frankfurt School focused intently on technology and culture, indicating how technology was becoming both a major force of production and a formative mode of social organization and control. Well, don't we know it today? Because with every invention that comes along, we're under more and more control. For every invention, in fact, remember one of the definitions of technology is to alter culture. That's one definition that has been given at a top science meeting. In a 1941 article, Some Social Implications of Modern Technology, Herbert Marcus argued that technology in the contemporary era constitutes an entire mode of organizing and perpetuating or changing social relationships, a manifestation of prevalent thought and behavior patterns, an instrument for control and domination. So as we think we're getting freed up with all the gizmos and gadgets we're given to communicate, we're actually being enslaved and monitored and watched and patterned, get your own pattern. Back with more after the following messages. I'm Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix, going through an article from a university on this particular Frankfurt School. They sometimes call themselves the dispossessed. As I say, some of them were actually recruited by MI5 and 6 during World War, or they were actually called MI6 was still the OSS at that time. But they recruited a lot of these guys who were called the dispossessed. And some of them couldn't get on with them at all because they were so rigid in their views of things because they were, they were technically and proudly, some of them, pure Trotskyite in their beliefs that they must always have continual conflict to speed up the process of evolution rather than that happen naturally, as they claimed. It says here, in the 1941 article, this is Some Social Implications of Modern Technology by Herbert Marcuse. He said, in the realm of culture, technology produced mass culture, technology produced mass culture that habituated individuals to conform to the dominant patterns of thought and behavior and thus provided powerful instruments for social control and domination. Victims of European fascism, the Frankfurt School experienced firsthand the ways that the Nazis used the instruments of mass culture to produce submission to fascist culture and society. Now, they also knew perfectly well the Sovietized system as well. They, they knew both of this, both these systems. While in exile in the United States, the members of the Frankfurt School came to believe that American popular culture was also highly ideological and worked to promote the interests of American capitalism. For it. it was directed, you see, in a planned culture. 
because they promoted the interests of American capitalism, they could bring about this new blend, not quite Soviet, not quite capitalist. Remember, that was the aim of setting up the communist system in the first place. Lenin said that himself. Controlled by giant corporations, the culture industries were organized according to the strictures of mass production, churning out mass-produced products that generated a highly commercial system of culture, which in turn sold the values, lifestyles, and institutions of the American way of life. Remember what Skinner said? You alter behavior, you alter something in the environment of the, of the subject. TVs, radios, and we've got so many gadgets today. You walk a lot, you see people on the streets yapping away into their cell phones, oblivious of real people around them. The work of the Frankfurt School provided for Paul Lazarsfield, one of the originators of modern communication studies, and that's a very important area, modern communication studies. It's not just how they do it, how they communicate, that I should talk about the studies on people, called the critical approach which he distinguished from the administrative research. The positions of Adorno, Lowenthal, and other members of the inner circle of the Institute for Social Research, very important institute, were contested by Walter Benjamin, an idiosyncratic theorist loosely affiliated with the Institute. Benjamin, writing in Paris during the 1930s, discerned progressive aspects in new technologies of cultural production, such as photography, film, and radio. In the work in, this is called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And I can hear the music coming in. It's, this hour is sped by. So I'll be back with more from this particular topic tomorrow. So from Hamish and myself, Ontario, Canada, a very cold, about 40 degrees below Fahrenheit, Ontario. It's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.